0: We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. If you've been at Willingdon for a while, then you know that the mission statement of this church is to know Jesus Christ personally and to carry on His ministry. And as we've been going through this series of studies, we've been focused on five E-words which just tell us how we should walk together as disciples of Jesus. Now help me. The first one is, I'm not teaching very well, exalt. Exalt. The second, evangelize. The third, engage. The fourth, equip. And the fifth, empower. And so if you walk through the lobby, you'll see these banners hanging from the ceiling. If you walk down the stairs, you'll see in the stairwell there are posters with these words. We are to exalt God in all things. Uh, Evangelize. Share the good news of Jesus with those that don't know Jesus. Engage in community. Walk together. And today we're focusing on equipping, passing on what we have received. The equipping function, sometimes we think that this is just for pastors, it's for elders, it's for those that are in leadership in the church. Actually, it's for all disciples. We all have things that God has entrusted to us that we are to pass on. Second Timothy This letter to Timothy from Paul is one of the great farewell speeches in all of Scripture. You may remember Moses' farewell speech to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 34 or Jesus' farewell speech to his disciples in John 14 through 16. Well, 2 Timothy is a very intensely personal letter. It's Paul sharing his heart with his protege, Timothy. Imagine that you were completing a phase of life, or maybe your life was coming to an end, what would you want to pass on to your loved ones? What would you want to leave as an instruction for a disciple? Paul is imprisoned in Rome for the sake of Christ. He threw everything away in order to pursue God's calling on his life, and that was, of course, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He went to Syria. He went to Turkey. He went to Greece, and now he's in Rome. He's imprisoned in Rome, The emperor Nero, he is determined to persecute Christians. It's an orchestrated, maniacal persecution of Christians in Rome, and Paul's life is coming to an end. The time is short. He's run the good race. The overriding question of this letter is, how will Timothy run the race when Paul is gone? How will Timothy carry what God has placed in his hands? So, let's go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You'll notice that Paul gives Timothy three commands. First of all, be strengthened. Secondly, in trust, And thirdly, share in suffering. And the third command is expanded by three metaphors, that of a soldier, athlete, and a farmer. Let's dig into verse one. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How will be Timothy be strengthened for the task that is before him? That word strengthened at its root in Greek is the word power. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, in essence, be empowered by God. If God calls you to do something, Timothy, to step forward, to step up, to move ahead, God will empower you by his spirit, by grace. Paul refers to this empowerment as being by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does that grace look like in Timothy's life? Well, the specifics of the grace that he has received are in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul is building on what he has already said in chapter 1. So Paul is saying, Timothy, in light of what you have received, walk in the strength of the equipper. The grace in Christ Jesus. It's interesting where Paul starts in chapter 1. He says that he's praying for Timothy. And then in verse 5, he says something very interesting. Chapter 1, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is fascinating. Paul says, Timothy, remember your wonderful grandmother Lois and your amazing mother Eunice. They were women of sincere faith. And I am sure that that faith now resides in you as well. Those women, they invested in you. They equipped you. That was God's grace to you. Maybe you were blessed with a godly mother or a godly grandmother. I think of my grandmother, Helena, who wrote her prayers to relatives in the former Soviet Union, prayed for them. I think of my own mother, Who, my memory of my mother is her praying on her knees for her four sons. You can probably imagine why. But I am thankful for the example of a godly mother and a godly grandmother. Paul had a godly mother. He had a godly grandmother. And Paul says, give thanks for the grace that you have received. And so, today, thank God for your mother, for your grandmother. Thank God for them. Thank them. Susanna Wesley, she's considered to be the mother of the Methodist church. Why? On one occasion, she was writing to her husband, who was often absent, and this is what she wrote. I am a woman, but I am also the mother of a large family. She had 19 children. Any mothers here with 19 children? She had 19. Nine died as infants. She writes on, and though the superior charge of the souls contained in it lies upon you, yet in your long absence—I think there is a bit of a jab there for Samuel—yet in your long absence, I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed to me under a trust. I am not a man nor a minister, yet as a mother, I felt I ought to do more than I had yet done. I resolved to begin to begin with my own children in which I observe the following method. I take such a proportion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with each child apart. On Monday, I talk with Molly. On Tuesday, with Hetty. Wednesday, with Nancy. Thursday, with Jackie. Friday, with Patty. Saturday, with Charles. And I don't think John had yet been born. Well, Susanna Wesley, she's referred to as the mother of the Methodist movement because John and Charles... When they led this movement, they applied the discipleship teachings of their mother. They followed her godly example. The vision for equipping it often doesn't begin in the pastor's office, it actually begins in the heart of parents who pass on what they have received from God to their children. Maybe you did not have a a godly mother or a godly grandmother, but I'm sure that in the life of the church, God has provided for you women of godly character that have inspired you. Mother figures. It may have been an aunt, a cousin, or another woman present in the church. But God, by His grace, through the family of faith, provides the examples of godly women that follow Jesus. And we're called to be thankful. That's God's grace to us. Going back to verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Timothy. The language in that verse, it's intimately connected to chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Let's read a few of those verses chapter 1 verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit of not of fear but of power and love and self-control. What's the gift of God that Timothy received by grace that word gift of God in verse 6 it has as its root grace. The grace that Timothy received was the gift of the Holy Spirit. When he deposited his faith in Christ as his grandmother and mother had done, he received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, Paul says. Jesus abiding in Timothy, Christ in him. So Paul says, "'Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. "'Stir up the smoldering embers into a living flame. "'Pray for the infilling of the Spirit, Timothy.'" The Spirit given to you is not one of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And the Spirit within you is there to empower you for all moments of life, all circumstances. You've been blessed by the sincere faith of your grandmother and your mother, and you've been equipped with the Spirit of God himself. Paul goes on, chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Then down to verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul says to Timothy very clearly, don't be ashamed of the gospel. You've received this high calling. You've been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, in his sovereignty for his purposes, you have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and all that it means for those who call on Jesus to be made alive by the Spirit, to be justified before the Father, declared righteous, to have the guilt of sin removed, shame removed, to be at peace with God, to be healed, to be saved, to be made whole. So, Timothy, be strengthened. Be empowered by the example of your grandmother. Be strengthened by the example of your mother. Be strengthened because you have received the gift of God abiding within you. Be strengthened by your high calling. You were set apart to proclaim the good news. And Paul would say, follow my example. I'm running this race. I'm enduring. Follow my example. Endure. All of this, God's grace to you, Timothy. John Wesley As a young man, he struggled in his faith. He was educated at Oxford. He struggled to understand the grace of God in his life. But there was a day when God spoke to him very clearly through the word. And when he came to an understanding of God's grace to him, that he was a child of God by grace through faith, he became a preacher. And he literally rode thousands of miles proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ as only a preacher could under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. John Wesley had the example of his mother, a godly woman who invested in his life. And when he was touched by the Holy Spirit, he became a preacher that God used for the Reformation of England in the 18th century. We've been strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Then Paul goes on in verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. So this verse emphasizes the service of the equipper, entrust the gospel to faithful people. How many generations in verse 2? What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Two generations, three, there's actually four, right? So Paul, representing one, Timothy another, the disciples of Timothy a third, and the disciples of Timothy's disciples. So four generations. What is to be entrusted? Paul writes, what you have heard from me. He uses very similar language in chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Again, similar language in chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So what is Paul saying when he writes this? He's saying, Timothy, this is not some fabricated legend. This is not some myth that's a person imagined. No, this is a gospel that's rooted in historical events that you received From me, we're talking about Jesus of the lineage of David, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. He was crucified in Jerusalem. He rose on the third day. And there are many witnesses to this resurrection and many that have heard this gospel preached. It is widely and publicly attested, not something given in a hidden corner. It's authenticated by many. What does Paul mean by entrust? That word entrust, it means to deposit, to keep for safekeeping. It's banking language. And so he's saying, Timothy, if you're going to deposit something into the vault of your disciples' heart, then deposit gospel truth. And that truth will always point people to Jesus. Entrust, deposit. To whom should the gospel be entrusted? Well, our translation reads, to faithful men. The Greek word that's translated as men here is actually the word people. That's the way it's translated in 1 Timothy 3.2 and 3.13. Certainly men should receive this deposit of the gospel. Faithful men, that means capable, trustworthy, reliable men. If we read the whole of scripture, we come to the understanding that both men and women are to come to a full understanding of the gospel. So Timothy entrusts the gospel faithful men and women entrust the gospel to trustworthy men and women you see Paul he's at the end of his life and he sees farther he sees the next generation and Christian leaders Christian parents disciples of Christ we must always live not only for our generation but for the next at Willingdon we're multi-generational it's a wonderful gift No matter what your age, no matter what your experience, your background, you have received something from Jesus that you are to pass on. Now those of us that are older, I include myself among the older, whatever we've received, we are to pass on to the younger generation. There are younger men and women looking for mentoring here. There are many examples in history of the gospel truth being passed on. Here's one example. Richard Sibbs. he was born in the 16th century. He wrote a little book about Jesus called The Bruised Reed. That little book fell into the hands of a tin peddler who gave it to a boy named Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter became one of the great preachers, great Puritan preachers of the 17th century. Baxter, he wrote a little book called A Call to the Unconverted, which Philip Doddridge read in the 18th century. Doddridge then wrote... The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. William Wilberforce, he read that book at the end of the 18th century, and it so transformed his life that he led the movement for the abolition of slavery in the 19th century. Charles Coulson was so inspired by the example of William Wilberforce in the 20th century that he started a ministry called Prison Ministries. And of course, Coulson has written many books which encourage us in our generation. And so there you have gospel truth being passed on from generation to generation. Gospel truth rooted in the word of God that continues to inspire us to this day. Whatever we've received, we're called to pass it on. Now, if you don't know who your disciples are, who you should be passing truth on to, just ask Jesus. He loves answering this prayer. You may just be beginning in your walk with Jesus, or you may have a PhD in theology. What, wherever you are in life, whatever you have received, you can pass it on. Sometimes we've just come to faith in Jesus, and all we can say is, Hey, I know where to find living water. I met Jesus, he's changed my life. That's all you've got. But share it. <laughs> Often when we come to faith, we have this network of relatives and friends that don't know Jesus. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will use us to reach them. So be faithful. Be courageous. We're all called to pass on what we have received. So Paul says to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do the service of an equipper, pass on to faithful people the gospel entrusted to you, and then thirdly, share in the suffering. He talks about the suffering of the equipper, and he uses three metaphors to talk about this. We often don't talk about suffering in North America when we talk about discipleship. But the New Testament is clear. The New Testament talks about sharing in the suffering. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So Timothy, expect to suffer. It's part of the discipleship journey. But suffer like a single-minded soldier. Paul writes that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Uh, This verse is sometimes misinterpreted to mean that. Okay, don't, don't... engage in secular life give your life to ministerial stuff like be a pastor be a missionary well the truth is that we are all called to live a missionary life no matter no matter where we are no matter what we do we are all called to live a missionary life the message is not be a pastor not a lawyer be a missionary not a paramedic that's not the message we will remember from Colossians chapter 3 last week that we learned that all of life is to be lived spiritually, in obedience to the Spirit, grounded in the Word of God. No matter where we are, no matter where we are working or living, we are not to become entangled in things in such a way that we miss our primary calling, the reason for our existence. The call here is to single-mindedness, to focus. The call is to exercise wholehearted devotion to our commanding officer. And that commanding officer, of course, is Jesus. Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he refers to an example, Demas, who, because he loved the world, abandoned his mission. And so he's saying to Timothy and to us, don't look back. Don't get enmeshed. Don't get entangled. Don't look for an easier path. In my daily Bible reading, I've been reading through First Chronicles, and I was encouraged by First Chronicles 12 recently, which describes David's warriors, and I love the way that they are described. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, of Issachar, one of the tribes of Israel, men who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. Two hundred chiefs, and all their kinsmen under their command, of Zebulun, another tribe, 50,000 seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. David's warriors, of course, were often called to battle. They needed to be equipped. We, too, are to live as soldiers, single-minded soldiers who are equipped for battle. And, of course, that in part means that we put on the full armor of Christ as described in Ephesians chapter 6. When we put on that armor, we're putting on the gospel. We're putting on Jesus himself. Last weekend, I shared with you that we've had some interesting neighbors for the last four months, drug dealers living above us. And so as we've prayed for them in the situation, we've asked ourselves the question, what does it mean to be equipped for the battle in our day, in real life? How do we pray for the people above us? How do we pray for the people that they are dealing drugs to? How do we pray for government officials? How do we pray for the justice system? How do we pray for the chief of police? How do we pray for our neighbors? At some level, when drug is being dealt in our city, all are affected. How do we pray in our day? What does it look like to be equipped for battle, to hold up the shield of faith, to believe that God can do a miracle in our day? So we've prayed for them. We've prayed for their salvation. We've prayed for our city. Thank you for your prayers because they moved this last week. (laughs) But we continue to pray for them. They need Jesus. The Lord calls us to understand our times. One of my um, burdens for the Canadian church is that I believe the Canadian church is not aware, fully aware of the times in which we live. So are we equipped for battle in our day? As our society becomes increasingly hostile to Jesus, to the people that follow Jesus, to the church, to gospel truth, will will we be able to stand in our day? Are we equipped for the battle? Do we understand the day that we live in? When society is going in a direction away from God, you can be sure that God is moving in a different direction. And God's heart would be that there would be revival in our day. So do we pray for that? Do we intercede for our nation in that way and for ourselves? Because revival, of course, will always begin in our lives, in the life of the church. That's why the Lord calls us to singleness of purpose. There's a battle that we are to engage in. We're to live like soldiers, like David's warriors, to live for God's glory, for the furtherance of his kingdom, to fix our eyes on Jesus and the race God. Set before us, chapter 2, verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So, Timothy live like a disciplined athlete. Paul's saying at least three things with this metaphor. Run according to the rules of the contest, Timothy. Athletes at that time, they they prepared themselves for, for the games in Greece. With a lot of discipline, a lot of rigor. They were expected to train for 10 months prior to the games. And so he's saying, Timothy, train for the contest. Get ready. Thirdly, you'll notice that the athlete runs with the goal of winning the prize, of being crowned. No point in running the race if you're not running for the crown. Of course, at that time, the victor would receive a wreath, a crown symbolizing that he was the victor. I was talking to someone from church the other day that we were talking about playing hockey. What's the point in playing hockey if you're not playing to win? <laughs> so Paul is saying, run the race. Running for the crown. And of course, what is the crown? What is the prize? This is Paul's answer, Second Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To all who have loved his appearing. Eugene Peterson has written that when Jesus fills the imagination of a disciple of Jesus, when the disciple lives for the appearing of Jesus, the coming of Christ, then all other worries and fantasies dissipate. Let me say that again. If Jesus fills our vision, the coming of Jesus, the appearing of Jesus fills our vision, then all other fantasies and worries dissipate. You see, then you fight with the single-mindedness of a, sho- of a soldier. You run with the discipline of an athlete and you toil like a hope-filled farmer. Chapter 2, verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I think farmers always believe that they should have the first share of the crops because they have worked so hard. One thing about farmers is that they always have the harvest in view. They live with hope. You don't plow the soil, plant seeds, tend the plants, weed, fertilize, water, if you don't have the harvest in view. You observe weather cycles, seasonal patterns. You try to understand the times. You do everything with the harvest in view, which at the end of the day is in God's hands. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, a disciple of Christ that lives under the empowerment of the Spirit will always live with the coming of Jesus in view. One of the teachings that is very pervasive in our day is that we should just be present in the moment. Sometimes it's called the art of now, or it's referred to as mindfulness. And the teaching is that we are to be attentive to the moment, that we are not to grasp our thoughts nor push them away. We are not to judge our thoughts, just experience the moment. It's understood that this will reduce stress and anxiety. The teaching is that as you experience the moment, as you are mindful, then you become less conscious of yourself and more in tune with the universal impersonal energy that unites all things. Now what is often not made explicit in our schools is that this has a religious foundation. And what it actually means is the removal of God from our lives, the annihilation of the self, and the end of all things. A Psychology Today article, which is supportive of mindfulness, says that a cartoon that appeared in The New Yorker actually sums it all up. And in the cartoon, there are two monks just sitting, meditating. And the younger one Looks to the older with the quizzical look, and finally the older one looks to the younger and says, "Nothing happens next. This is it. Nothing happens next. This is it." Jesus would not concur with that statement. That is not what Jesus would expect. One of his followers to pass on. Jesus would say, Actually, something does happen next. You cannot live a meaningful life without a view to the future. We were created to live in this way. That's the way we're hardwired. We were not created to just experience a moment and not grasp our thoughts nor push them away nor judge them, just experience the moment. That's not the teaching of Christ. It is not truth. Jesus would say, I am the truth. I am the one that reveals truth to you. I actually give you a path to follow, a reason to to live, a race to run. I fill your past, your present, and your future with meaning. And if you want to live the moment fully, then walk in the fullness of my spirit and you will be as attentive to the moment as you possibly could be. But attentive to the moment under the inspiration of the spirit with that kind of clarity, that kind of focus, that kind of vision, actually alive in being the person that you were intended to be with a full understanding of who God is. Listen to the way that Paul ends this passage. Think over what I say. Ponder it. Could be translated. Work out what I'm getting at. Consider this web of commands, the metaphors in this text. Think beyond to the road ahead. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. He'll give you insight in everything. What are the implications for you and for me? Well, we're called to be grateful for the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. We've been empowered by godly examples, godly mentors. We have received, if we're in Jesus, we've received the gift of God, the Holy Spirit himself dwelling within us. He is present in our lives to lead us into all truth, to give us understanding in everything. He empowers us for life and service. We've been, we've been gifted with a rich understanding of the gospel. Whatever we've received, we are to pass it on. And so again, if you don't know who your disciples are, ask Jesus. He'll provide disciples. God will answer that prayer. And as disciples, let's share in the suffering. Let's fight the good fight. Let's live like single-minded soldiers, disciplined athletes, hard-working farmers, hope-filled farmers. The road is not always safe, but life is filled with meaning, and it is life-changing. Before the Second World War began, Adolf Hitler, he was insistent, as as insistent as the Roman Emperor Nero was in Paul's day, that his sovereignty be unquestioningly acknowledged. In Germany, Western Europe, whatever Adolf Hitler imagined, he could not tolerate the thought of any other sovereign lord. And in that climate, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Gospel truth for that day, for our day. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a classic book on discipleship, The Cost of Discipleship. It was published in 1937. I encourage you to read it. In that book, he writes, We pay no attention to our own lives or the new image which we bear, for then we should at once have forfeited it. Since it is only to serve as the mirror for the image of Christ on whom our gaze is fixed, the disciple looks solely at his master. The disciple looks solely at his master. So Bonhoeffer lived with Jesus filling his vision for the future. He lived for the appearing of Jesus. Several years later, he, of course, was imprisoned by the Nazis. And the testimony that came out of The prison where he was being held was that he exuded the peace of Christ as he lived for the appearing of Jesus. His life, of course, was taken prematurely just before the end of the Second World War, taken by his Nazi captors. But Bonhoeffer, he entrusted something to his disciples, he entrusted the gospel. He passed on a godly example. He left his writings with us. What he received from Jesus, he passed on. What would inspire us? What would motivate us to live in this way? Well, one, the grace that Paul received, the grace that John Wesley received, the grace that Dietrich Bonhoeffer received, we have received that same grace in Christ Jesus. They live to please their Lord, their commanding officer. We are called to live for Jesus, for his glory. Those men, they lived with a reward in mind. They were focused on what Jesus had for them. They were waiting for the day when they would see Jesus face to face. And we are called to live in the same way. Because there is a day's coming when we as disciples will hear from Jesus, Well done my good and faithful servants. May Jesus fill our vision. May the vision for the coming of Christ so fill us that all fantasies and worries of this age dissipate. May we walk for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So Father, we thank you again for your abundant grace, for your love for us, which is way beyond anything that we could imagine, that you, while we were yet sinners, would reach out to us and extend grace to us. Send Jesus to us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin upon yourself, for paying the price we could never pay for drawing us to Yourself by Your Spirit, for revealing Your truth to us. Thank You, Jesus, for the day when we surrendered ourselves to You. That was by Your grace. And on that day, Lord, we surrendered it all, and so today, when we live in that way, if things have begun to take on our life and our souls that they should never take, Lord, may we repent and turn to You and just commit ourselves again, Jesus, to live completely for your glory. May we run the race like disciplined athletes. May we fight like single-minded soldiers. May we work like hope-filled farmers, trusting you for the harvest, for reward. Thank you, Jesus, that just as you were present in Paul's life and Timothy's life, Just as you were at work in John Wesley's life and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, you were at work in our life. It is the same spirit. Thank you, Jesus. And so may we be strengthened by the grace that is in you, Jesus. May we do the service of equippers, entrusting the gospel to others. And may we share in the suffering because it's as we suffer in your name that we're transformed into our likeness. And so, Lord, May we embrace the journey that you have before us because you have saved us, you are in us, and you are our hope of glory. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of God and the the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.